All right, good morning. How are we doing? Good? You guys awake? All right, okay. All right. Well, I'm Andy. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at River Glen. Uh, thanks for being with us this morning. Also, if you're joining us online, thanks for joining us as well. As we finish up this series, Electric Faith, going through the book of James. So, um, since Dave brought up my uh, classic LeSabre, I thought I would start with some stories uh, about cars I've had. Um, since I've gotten my driver's license, uh, back in the day, I have always had used cars, and not just a little used, like so used, they're not usable anymore, right? Like, does anyone know what I'm talking about? Anyone? Okay, yeah. So I don't think I've ever had a car newer than 10 years old, and that means I've experienced a lot of car problems in my life. I hate car problems because I never really learned how to work on a car. Um, I can jump a battery, I can change a tire, that's about it. And so whenever I had a car problem, I would go to my dad. He was my go-to with all my car problems. And I remember one time I'm driving up to college and I'm on I-94 and all of a sudden I see sparks shooting up in my rearview mirror, like just coming up from the back of my car. I'm freaking out, I'm like, am I gonna die? So I pull over and I, I assess the situation and what I see is my muffler has fallen off, okay? Um, but it's still hanging on. It's like a loose tooth that just hasn't given up yet. And it's just kind of dragging on the pavement, shooting sparks everywhere. So I call my dad and I'm like, my muffler fell off. And he's like, well, is, is, like, where is it? I'm like, well, it's kind of attached. He's like, oh, well, just kick it. Kick it till it comes off. So I'm on the side of I-94 kicking my muffler and it doesn't come off. Um, I was much smaller back then, so it doesn't break off, and so I'm like, it's not coming off. He's like, well, do you have rope? Do you have bungee cords? I'm like, no. He's like, do you have a belt? Yes, I have a belt. Okay, so just use your belt to, like, fasten it up so it's not dragging on the ground. So that's what I did. I used my belt to hold my muffler off the ground. That's how we fix cars in my family, okay? So that was my dad's idea and it worked, it worked. I made it to Eau Claire and I didn't blow up. Another time I'm driving, um, and this is, this is the 1988 LeSabre, okay? So you can picture it, bench seats, beautiful. And it's raining, the wipers, uh, so I got my wipers on, but they're like slowing down, which I thought was weird. So I messed with the controls, didn't work, my radio starts cutting out, car starts acting crazy, call my dad. He's like, oh, your alternator's probably dead. And so your car is running on the battery and your, your battery's running out of juice. And I was like, oh, well, what do I do? He's like, well, just shut everything off, um, shut all the electric stuff off and just try to get to a service station or a parking lot or something. So uh, I coast into a farm and fleet and I call my dad. He comes out, we get an alternator, we change it right there in the parking lot um, and in the rain and then I drove back up to school. It was awesome. I, I felt really accomplished about that one, even though I did none of it. Um, now, one time, my dad actually caused the problem that he had to fix, okay? So I'm visiting him one time, and I mentioned I had no, uh, no like, window washer fluid. So he's like, oh, I got some. So we go out, he tops it off, and then I take off. And I'm going down the highway headed towards Madison, and all of a sudden, I realize something's wrong. Now, I have to tell you, my dad is very careful with cars. He respects them. He, he takes care of his stuff. I, I don't always, right? Um, when, my, when I lower a hood of a car, right, I just kind of like let it slam, right? Just like, drop it, boom. My dad, he lowers it softly, like a, like a newborn baby, and then, and then presses until it latches. But in this scenario, he didn't press hard enough, and the hood didn't latch. Okay, so I'm on the highway, and this is how I learned this. 
the hood, it kind of does this flutter thing, and then it just slams back into my windshield, okay? I see nothing, I'm crying, I'm screaming. I pull over into a snow, into like the snow bank on the side of the highway, freaking out. Now my dad is actually driving to the same place I'm going, so he's ahead of me. He sees all this happen in his rear view mirror, which had to have been awesome. He turns around, he pulls in behind me, and he comes up to my window laughing. <laughs> laughing, laughing at, I'm crying, he's laughing. So, <laughs> he had bungee cords, so we strapped my hood down. Um, we went to a junkyard, we found some brackets, um, and we got some hammers, and we hammered that hood back into the original shape, uh, got a new windshield, and I was good to go. So whenever I had car problems, my dad was my go-to, even after he tried to kill me once. He was still, still my go-to. We all have these people in our lives. These are go-to people. And we reach out to them when we go through something. Maybe when we need help, we reach out to someone. Maybe when we experience something awesome or we accomplish something, uh, there's someone that we want to tell and share that news with. When we're struggling, there's that person who always empathizes with us. We all have these people in our life for certain situations, um, circumstances, then uh, they're our go-to people because they're the first person we're going to go to. It's great to have these people in our lives. These are people who share uh, the highs and the lows with us. They go through life with us. But what we know is that people are not really enough, right? They're great, but they're not enough. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, what James is going to tell us today is that God should really be our go-to in every situation. I'm going to be honest. When I think of all situations, highs, lows, struggles, frustrations, things that confuse me, cause me anxiety, uh, decisions I have to make, even awesome things I go through, I do not think I make God my go-to in every situation. He's not the first one I'm talking to all the time. Sometimes in God being my go-to, instead of God becoming my go-to, He's become my backup. He's my backup. When you think of all these situations you find yourself dealing with on a daily basis, Ask yourself, is God my go-to? Has he been my go-to? Am I talking to him about everything? Or is he more of my backup, who I go to when I feel like I have to? It's an important question, and it's a tough question. And I don't know if you've realized this, but when we've been going through the series of James, we get into some tough stuff. And that's how James is. As I mentioned, we're wrapping up the series Electric Faith. We're going through this letter that James wrote. And James's letter is unique uh, compared to a lot of the other letters in the New Testament. James doesn't spend a lot of time uh, explaining the gospel. He doesn't talk a lot about what Jesus has done. Really, he just kind of gets into it with a very convicting, challenging letter. When Paul wrote letters, which is what the New Testament's really made of, a lot of letters by Paul, he writes to these cities that are full of people who they, they're removed from Jesus' life. They, they, didn't, um, they didn't experience a lot of these things. And James is writing to people in Jerusalem. And the people in Jerusalem, they were probably eyewitnesses. They were much closer to Jesus' life and his ministry. So James is probably assuming, I don't need to get into this. They've seen it. They know it. Instead, let's talk about your life. All right, let's talk about how you live your life. And the theme that runs through this letter is... Faith works. Faith leads to works. It leads to action. Faith is trust in action. And one of these works, one of these actions that should be produced by our faith is prayer. Praying to God, talking to the Father, communicating with our Creator, all of it, it's motivated and it's fueled by our faith. And when we do it, prayer then fuels 
and grows our faith in God. So prayer is essential. It's essential to developing and having a relationship with God. Here's what James says. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with the oil, with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So um, he says basically, summing it up, go to God in all situations, right? Are you suffering? Pray. Are you happy? Did something good happen? Pray. Praise him. Are you sick? Pray. Have you sinned? Pray. Right? Are you struggling with something? Pray. Need help in any area of your life? Pray. There is no situation where you can't talk to God. Right? Little things, big things, mundane things, doesn't matter. Pray. This expands our idea of what prayer is. We usually think of prayer, we think of asking for something, we think of requesting something for God, but it's so much more than that. You imagine having a friend who only talked to you when they needed something from you? Right? Like they only called you whenever they had a request for you. That would be annoying. All right? That really wouldn't be a friend. That would be more like a boss. Right? We have a relationship with God. And it is a friendship. And it's not one-sided. It's two-sided. He's done his part. He's spoken to us through his word, through his Bible. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have his spirit in you who's guiding you. So now we respond to him in all situations. We talk to him, as Jane puts it, all the time. But what if we don't? Because I bet a lot of us don't. I don't. I don't talk to God all the time. Why is that? Right? What is it that might be causing us not to talk to God as often as we should? Well, James says something really important, and you can kind of miss it. It's in verse 15. He says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. He doesn't say prayer will save the one. He says the prayer of faith. The prayer of faith. This is where this idea of faith and action come together, right? This is the theme of James. Faith works. It produces action. Trusting is tied to doing. And today what we find is that prayer is motivated by faith. Prayer is faith in action. Prayer is faith in action, meaning our prayers are influenced by what we believe. So based on what James says here about prayer being connected to faith, this is what we need to realize. What we believe, what we believe is really what influences whether God is our go-to or our backup. So if he's not your go-to, you need to start thinking, well, what is it that I believe? What is it that I believe? Specifically, what is it that I believe about God that's impacting my prayer? And what is it that I believe about myself that's impacting my prayer? So let's break this down. James says prayer is faith in action. Faith in what? Faith in what? What beliefs drive and motivate our prayers? And also, what beliefs hinder our prayers? Right? First, first truth, God is in control. God is in control. I think above all else, if God isn't in control, prayer makes no sense. Right? If God is not in control, then we can't ask him for anything because he doesn't have uh, control or he's not in charge. 
If he isn't in control, then we can't really praise him for the things going on in our life, the awesome things that are happening. We can't celebrate with him if he's not in charge. If God isn't in control, prayer does not make sense. But guess what? God is in control. A word you might hear sometimes that describes this about God is sovereign. It's this idea that he rules everything. He's reigning over everything. He's in charge of everything. He's in control. And we find this all throughout Scripture. A couple of verses. Jeremiah 32, 17 says, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power, by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. There's nothing he can't handle because he's in charge, because he's in control. He's the one who made it all. Psalm 103, 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. He rules all of the universe. And then Colossians 1.17 says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's not distant. He's not outside of our world just watching. He is active. He is in it. He is making it work. He is holding it together and function. God is reigning. He is ruling. He is powerful. He is in charge. He is in control. And that means we should pray to him. Now, we struggle sometimes believing this because what we do is we look at the world around us and we think, how could God be in control? We can't reconcile what's going on in the world with the idea that God is in control. This isn't really a question of who's in control. This is a question of understanding what it means for God to be in control, right? Job, he, uh, Job is a man who he has his own book in the New, uh, Old Testament, and he experienced just about every struggle and hardship that you could imagine. He has this same uh, conflict. He cannot reconcile who he believes God is with what's going on in his life, and he questions God. He questions God, and then God ends up answering him directly. Could you imagine that? You question God, and then he answers you? Well, this is how it goes down to, uh, for Job. God says, dress for action like a man. Could you, let's just stop. Could you imagine God coming to you, and he's like, all right, put your big boy pants on. Have you seen I'd cry. Put your big boy pants on, Job. Here it comes. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who, outs who stretched the line upon it? He's kind of being sarcastic, kind of proving a point. And the point is, we can't possibly understand how God operates. Right? We don't understand everything he understands. We're finite. God is infinite. We are creation. He's the creator. He's God. We are not. And the belief that sometimes hinders our prayers is that we kind of turn ourselves into a God of our lives. We think we're in control of our lives. We're in charge. And this is the belief we kind of buy into. We're in control. We're the master of my destiny. I have control over my life. I'm in charge of how it turns out. We have control over very few things. We have control over our choices, we have control over our actions, and we have control over our attitude, that's it. The outcome of our actions, we don't even have control over. Other people, that doesn't work, tried it, never worked, right? Weather, never gonna happen. We are not in control. And when we buy into this lie, we become self-reliant, we become self-sufficient, even self-centered, and in our minds, there's really no reason to go to God because I got this. I, I can figure it out on my own. I can solve this problem. I can fix this person. It doesn't work. This idea that we're in control of everything around us 
it, it's a lie, but it makes us feel powerful. It makes us feel important. It makes us feel worthy. But ultimately, it does not work. It leads to more problems. And it leads to us fighting for control in our lives, and we ignore God. He becomes a backup instead of a go-to. But because God is in control, we should pray to him. Because we're not in control, we should pray to him. But that's not the only reason, uh, or that's not the only thing that really motivates us is this idea that God is in control. That doesn't motivate us, really. It's that he's in control and he cares about us. Second truth, God cares. He cares deeply. All throughout scripture, God is described as this God who provides, who loves, who loves us. We're to relate to him like a child needs and depends and, and wants to be around his father for everything in life. Jesus put it this way. He's, he's talking to his followers and he's trying to explain to them how much God cares about them. And he uses birds as an illustration. He says, what is the price of two sparrows? One copper coin? One penny? Yet not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. He knows all the insignificant things in life. And he cares. And the very hairs on your head are numbered, even mine. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. What he's basically saying is, you have incredible worth. Peter, one of Jesus' first followers, he tells us that we can cast, we can give up all of our problems, not just the big ones, anything that makes you anxious, anything that causes you to worry, anything that causes you to doubt, you can give that up to God. Why? Because he cares. He cares for you. We matter to God. We, uh, we are loved by God. And what we tend to believe that hinders our prayers is that how could God love me? I'm so broken. I'm worthless. I'm unlovable. I'm beyond saving, whatever it is. And when we believe these things about ourselves, it's very easy to start to think that this is how God sees us. God sees me the way I see me. But that's not the truth. Paul, he warns us about this kind of thinking in 1 Corinthians. He says, in chapter 4, as for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or by any human authority. I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't prove I'm right. It is the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. Basically, what he's saying is, I don't care what others think about me or say about me or what their verdict is on me. Whether I'm lovable, unlovable, guilty, innocent, whatever it is, their judgment on me holds no weight. My own opinion of myself holds no weight. Only God can decide. Only God's opinion of me matters. And here's the deal. God says you have worth. You have value. You are significant. You are lovable. This is what David says about us. He says, uh, he's talking to God. He says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. How many of you look at yourselves and think, I am fearfully and wonderfully made? How many of you value yourselves as much as God does? It's hard, isn't it? Well, you should, because that's the truth. That's what God says about you. You have incredible value, not because of what you do or you don't do. You have incredible value because of who created you, who made you. God has given you value. He proves how much he values and loves us uh, through his son because he gave his son up for us. This is what Paul writes in Romans 5, 8. He says, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What we tend to believe is that because of all the sin in our life, the greed, the pride, envy, lust, 
hate, apathy, whatever it is, we think that's what makes us unlovable, right? Our sin is what makes us broken. It's what makes us lost. It's what makes us guilty, but it does not make us unlovable, right? It does not stop God from loving us because God loves us. He sends Jesus to earth. Jesus lives this incredible um, life, faithful life, sin-free life that we were supposed to live. He goes to the cross and dies for a death that we were supposed to die for, that we deserve, but he takes all of our sin with him. And now we can be forgiven, we can be reconciled, we can be made new. This is the good news. This is the good news of Jesus, that um, we are not only loved, but because of God's love, there is a solution to our biggest problem, right? God cares so much, he went to incredible lengths to prove to you how much he loves you, how much he loves you, so we could be forgiven, so we could be in this relationship with him, so we could have life with him. When you start to doubt that God cares, all you need to do is start reflecting on the cross, and realize this is how much God loves me. These are the lengths to which God would go to for me, right? If God didn't care, there wouldn't be a cross. But there is a cross, and he does care. But because he cares, you should pray for him, pray uh, to him. Because he's in control, you should pray to him, right? Two truths. You believe those two truths, it will change how often you go to God if he's your go-to, It'll start to eliminate that idea that he is your backup in life. Now, that's not all James has to say about prayer. He gives us a couple examples of this kind of prayer in action. He says, when you're sick and when you sin, right? Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. When you're sick, suffering, when you sin, these are moments when we can become uh, vulnerable. We can doubt. We can fear. We can start to think, maybe God doesn't care for me anymore because I've done this thing. Or we're sick and we think, maybe God never cared for me in the first place. Or we start to wonder if he's really in control. If I keep doing this habit, why doesn't God just take it away from me, right? If I'm sick, maybe he's not in control, right? The thing is, in these moments, we become vulnerable. We start to doubt. And James says these moments are when you need to go to other people for prayer because they can help you. If you can't pray, they can pray, which means we shouldn't just make God our go-to as individuals, right? Like as a community, as a church, God should be our go-to, God did not create us to do life alone. We were not meant to follow Jesus alone. We need others. We need others to help us. And the simplest way we can help each other is by praying for each other, praying for each other, right? Who should we, uh, who should we include? Who should we go to for prayer? James gives us this example of elders, Elders are leaders in the church. And we don't talk about elders a lot. River Glen has elders. Most churches do. I don't think James means only a specific person with a specific title can pray for you. I think he's using elders as an example because they are a perfect example of what a mature believer is, right? Mature believers, they've experienced life. They've gone through ups and downs. They've learned from experience what it means for God to be in control. They've, they've experienced what it means for God to care for them. They have the fruit in their lives that show that God is their go-to, Right? Mature believers are mature because God is the one they're going to. I believe if you're going to go to people to pray for you, 
It is wise to follow James' advice here, to go to people who have made God their go-to. When you go to someone for prayer, make sure that God is their go-to. Because if he isn't, you might end up with advice instead of prayer. Have you ever experienced that? I have. It's always funny to me, right? You go to someone, you're like, I have this health issue, and you end up getting like, lectured on not eating organic food or something, right? It's like, I, I have this health problem, and you gave me essential oils. It's not going to help. It's not helpful, right? I don't need P90X. I need prayer. You go to someone with a struggle or a sin, and you walk away feeling condemned, you know, that's not helpful. If I'm struggling or I've sinned, I don't need someone else's help to make me feel condemned. I have that figured out pretty well. Um, I need someone to remind me I have worth. I need someone to point me to Jesus to tell me that sin was taken care of. I am forgiven. There's hope for redemption in my life and to pray for me. This is what the church is supposed to do. This is why James says, confess your sins to one another because you get it out into the open and then you find uh, a loving person who accepts you prays for you, that brings healing. This is why the church is so important because we need each other to heal spiritually, emotionally, whatever it is. We need to be in community here, to know others, to be known by others, to put yourself around people who take following Jesus seriously, right? People aren't just going to give you advice. People who are going to go to God on your behalf and pray for you when you're struggling, First question we all ought to ask ourselves is, do we have these people in our lives, these people who will pray for us? If you don't, will you begin the journey towards getting into community, getting outside of just being part of the crowd here, but getting into community, making yourself known, starting to know others? You can do that this summer. We have all kinds of groups going on. Second question, if people come to you for prayer, are you going to God or is he your backup and you're trying to solve the problem? Right? We can, we should love people, but we cannot fix people. The best thing we can usually do for someone is to pray for them, is to go to God on their behalf. We'd be so much better off if we stopped trying to fix each other and we just trusted. You know what? God cares for this person more than I ever could. He is in control. I'm going to pray to him for them. As James puts it, the prayer of a righteous person has power. It has power and then he ends this section by giving us an example of what this power looks like. He mentions this guy, Elijah. This is a prophet. Um, and he is, for, for, the, for the people reading James's letter, he would have been up there with Moses and David. He's a big, big guy, right? Like really important, did crazy things. And God answered his prayers and it didn't rain for three and a half years. And then he prayed again and it started raining and people would look at this and say, this is the power of prayer, and they're absolutely right. But what most of us would think is that, yeah, but that's Elijah. I'm Andy. I'm a nobody. I'm just average. I'm not some powerful person. I have a past. I have issues going on. I lack faith. I'm young. I'm new to all this. Whatever it is, we would have something. We'd have some rationalization. But James answers uh, all our, all our uh, comments. He says this, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah was flawed. Elijah was a sinner. Elijah made mistakes. He missed the mark. He was messy. There is nothing special about Elijah, the person that made his prayers powerful. There was special, something special about God that makes his prayers powerful, right? It's not the person, it's God. You and I are no different than Elijah. 
And we're praying to the same person. Elijah trusted God, prayed bold prayers. We can too. We can too. No matter how beat up, broken, flawed, of a mess you are, whatever it is, right? Whatever people say about you, whatever you think about yourself, it is only God who gives the last word on you. And if you believe in Jesus, the verdict on your life is not guilty because Jesus paid the debt. He paid the price. He took the punishment. We are free. We are innocent. We are forgiven. And we are reconciled to God. And God is listening. And He is powerful. And He cares. And He's in control. And because of all that, God should be our go-to all the time. All the time. I love how the author of Hebrews puts it. He says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy, find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray with confidence that God is listening, that he is hearing us, that he cares about us, and that he is in control. Right now, I'm going to pray for all of us, and then we're going to practice uh, praying as a community uh, for one another. So just join me in prayer right now. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Um, Because of him, we We are reconciled to you. There is forgiveness uh, for all of our sins, past, present, future. There is hope for our lives. Um, And we can know you and we can spend eternity with you because of Jesus. Nothing nothing tops that. Um, As we pray, give us guidance for those who need guidance. Uh, Give comfort to those who need comfort. Show grace and love to those who need it. Um, And celebrate with the people who are going through really incredible things. We love you. Um, Thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for listening to us. And it's in his name. Amen. James says the prayer of a righteous person has power. The prayer of a follower of Jesus has power. Some of you are people who need to be prayed for. Some of you are people who ought to be praying for others. I bet a lot of us, we fall into both of those uh, categories. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask some broad questions and ask you to identify and answer uh, some of these questions. If you find yourself falling into this category, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand, all right, which is kind of vulnerable, but that's okay. Because to really be prayed for, you have to be vulnerable, right? To experience that power of other believers, you have to be vulnerable. That's what James says, right? I'm going to ask uh, the rest of us as people raise their hands, if it's not you, I want you to identify, look around you, look for someone raising their hand and pray for them. You might not know their name. You might not know what they're going through, but God does. He knows all the details, right? All you need to do is go to God on their behalf. And James says the prayer, your prayer, has power in their life, okay? So here we go. If you're experiencing some sort of health issue, right? Um, It's causing you suffering. It's burdened you in some way. It's made your life more difficult. Whatever it is, if you are struggling through something you'd consider a health issue, would you raise your hand? All right. Now, those of you who aren't raising your hand, look around. Choose someone who you can pray for. Okay. Hands down. If you're someone who's struggling with a habit, a sinful attitude, um, an action, whatever it is, something in you that you want to go away, but it won't, right? And to be perfectly honest, we all have this going on, right? I do. If that's you, if you're struggling with something, something you know is wrong, and it's, it's causing you to doubt if God loves you, it's causing you to uh, experience a lot of shame in your life, a lot of fear, whatever it is, would you raise your hand? 
Right now, those of you who aren't raising your hand, choose someone around you, all right, and pray for them. All right, hands down. Last one. If you're someone who's wrestling with faith, maybe you don't believe, maybe you don't know if you can believe, maybe you have some serious doubts, you don't know what following Jesus means, you're hung up on something, you're angry, you're frustrated at God, whatever it is, would you raise your hand? Now, those of you that aren't raising your hand, would you choose someone around you that you could pray for? All right. First, just thanks for being honest. Thanks for being vulnerable. If uh, you're someone who would call yourself a follower of Jesus, hopefully you're going to be praying for someone, right? And if you're not a follower, if you're someone who doesn't pray, I want to challenge you to pray for yourself. Pray for yourself. Ask God to make himself real to you. Ask God to show you that he cares. Ask God to show you he's in charge and he's in control, right? It's okay to ask God to reveal himself, to help you with your unbelief, right? asking for understanding what it means to follow him. And in a moment, what we're going to do is we're going to pass communion, and our communion is open to everyone who's a follower of Jesus. And what we do is we take the bread that represents Jesus' body, and we take the juice that represents his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins, and we take these in. And as we take them in, we remember that Jesus gave his life so that we could have life. And during this time after communion, spend some time in prayer and do two things, right? First, praise God. Praise God for who he is, right? What he's done in your life, how much he loves you, how much he cares about you, how much he's forgiven, how much he puts up with, all the grace and the mercy and the compassion he's shown you. Thank him for that. Tell him how much he means to you. Tell him you love him. And then second, pray for the individual uh, or individual's around you. And then after service, uh, if you feel led, I'm going to encourage you, go tell someone if you prayed for them. People tell me they pray for me, and it, it encourages me so much. It makes me feel so loved, like I actually matter. And I don't think we hear that enough from one another. So I'm going to just encourage you, um, talk to each other. So let's take communion, let's spend time in prayer, and then let's worship.